still lit, which is great, nicely done. My name is Dee. I'm one of the uh, pastors here at the church, and it is a real privilege for me to have the chance to open up God's Word to you this morning. I would say before we jump in that um, I really believe you'd be hard-pressed to go um, anywhere else in the city and week in and week out, find the kind of music that you have here in both of these services, and it is such a, such a privilege to be here in this place. Thanks for what you do over and over again. Um, if you were a Roman citizen during the time when Jesus was born, the good news to you would be something very different than what we think of the good news today. For you, in that time as a Roman citizen, you would believe that the good news was the birth of Caesar Augustus, known as Octavius or Octavian, who was the one who followed Julius Caesar. He was born in about 63, 63 years before the birth of Christ. His, at that time, his great uncle, Julius Caesar, was ruling the Roman Empire, and he grew up under that. And he was about 18 years old. His great uncle was murdered. And as they went through the documents of Julius Caesar, they found that he had adopted and named as his heir Augustus. That was a shock to others. But this power transfer was now moving toward an 18-year-old person who had some background, some understanding, but certainly not much. Didn't seem like he would be adequate for all of the tasks, the things that were required of somebody who was going to lead an empire like that. And the transfer of power did not come very easily. There are others who were vying for that role as well, Mark Antony probably being the most famous among those. This was taking place around 43 B.C. To make matters a little bit easier for him in 42 B.C., they declared Julius Caesar as deity, which made Augustus the son of a god. So when you're talking about the good news to a group of, group of people, in the Roman Empire, what happened under Caesar Augustus' reign was very significant. The empire expanded, there was economic growth, there were some amazingly good things that happened to the people who were part of that empire. And so they celebrated his birth as being a very significant time. So this morning we're looking at the letter written to the church in Rome, which is really not the go-to passage for the week before Christmas. There are several others that are so much more appealing. There's the Isaiah passage that talks about the one who's coming and um, this great prophetic piece done in beautiful poetry. Then there's the fulfillment of that Isaiah piece in Matthew chapter 1, which is also one of the readings for this morning. That would be a great go-to passage for us. 
But instead, I chose the Romans 1 passage, verses 1 through 7, because it feels to me like this passage paints a very important understanding of what the gospel means to us as we prepare for the culmination of this Advent season, Christmas Day. Paul is introducing himself to the church at Rome. You need to understand he's not been there. He did not start this church. It's not like other letters that he wrote where he's given this introduction and saying, hey, it's great to see you. I'm looking forward to seeing you again. And then jumps into the content of the letter. Romans is different. He didn't start the church. He's never visited the church. He's hoping to go to the church. He obviously hasn't landed there in prison yet. He's trying to build some rapport, some common ground, and engender the support for what is his mission, his task that he's trying to draw the churches together to help in a particular way. And so in an incredibly long run-on sentence that in the English is broken up into several sentences for our sake, but spans about six verses in the original language, he describes himself to a group of people who don't know him at all. So one of my questions for you is, how would you do that? How would you describe yourself to a group of people who would like to know something about you but have never met you, don't know you really at all? We, we appeal to sometimes our, our work, what we do, our family, our educational background, um, there are a variety of ways in which we try and describe ourselves to someone else. I had this task set before me not too long ago. I was working with a group of people who didn't know me at all, but I was going to visit them. They asked me to come there, and um, they asked in the midst of the interaction that was leading up to that, could you send us a little background as to who you are, because none of us really know you. Um, and so I, I wrote a piece that was that effort to try and describe myself. I thought of the educational stuff, the where I work, and I thought, well, that really doesn't describe who I am. So this was my best effort at shooting off a note to this group of people. I am among the most fortunate in the world. I've been blessed with good health, live in a country with abundant food and water, and enjoy many freedoms others do not. My parents pattern their life after Christ, and my older sister continues to mentor me to this day. I married a woman with incredible talents, insight, kindness, and beauty, and have two daughters who continually show me God's love. I serve at a church that is unlike any place I have been in, in regard to affirmation, support, and receptivity. To whom much is given, much is required. With Christ as my source and the Spirit as my guide, I hope to give in the same way I have been blessed. It was my effort to try and describe who I am. I followed up with some of the other things of where I work and a few more details. But, but it's a tough exercise to try and identify who you are. That's exactly what Paul does in the first six verses of Romans chapter 1. He starts off saying, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, 
It's his opening line. Now, I, I respect the translation that most or many of us would have that use that exact phrasing. And I think that um, the language of slavery is language that uh, should appall if that language is used in endorsing it in any fashion. But when that language is used in Scripture in a way that is there to teach us something, I don't want to avoid that language. And so some translations in this opening line make reference to Paul, the bond slave of Jesus Christ, which has an interesting connotation to it. For the most part, this was a description of a slave because of certain circumstances who was given the opportunity to be set free by choice, chose not to leave the master, but continue in servitude by choice, attaching him or herself to the one who said, you've been set free. That was the nature of bond servitude. And, and Paul is describing himself as that type of a servant or slave to Jesus Christ, set free, but now wanting his identity, the view that others have of him to be tied, to be completely linked to the one whom he serves. That's Paul's self-description. What an interesting notion. It is this Jesus Christ about whom was written in our holy scriptures. This good news, the good news of God. This one, Jesus Christ, who by his earthly lineage was of the house of David, but was declared by the spirit of holiness through the resurrection as being the Son of God. Now, I know that it's possible to think that maybe Paul was drawing language from the current day to um, describe the good news, to speak about Jesus as Son of God, but I think we'd be off if we just thought this was borrowing language. It feels far more like a... Um, statement to the empire, the Roman empire. Let me make it perfectly clear. The one whom I serve is the son of God. From the line of David, acknowledging the Jewish connection, but declared in power by the spirit of holiness through the resurrection as the son of God. This is the good news. For a group of Roman citizens who viewed Caesar Augustus, who by this time has passed away, but nevertheless viewed as this person in history, identified as the one who has established the empire, Paul writes and in very clear ways undermines their entire understanding of what the good news might be. This gospel, what is it? 
Well, he says this very clearly in verse 17, that it is a faith, a righteousness that comes by faith, a righteousness that is from God, not by anything we've done. But it is a beginning and ending, a faith in God and a righteousness we receive simply because of that faith. In other words, it's nothing I do. It's God's gift pouring out righteousness and seeing me through that lens. If you've never thought this before, I just need to let you know that is the most ridiculous concept I've ever heard of. It's preposterous. Who believes in a God that makes us righteous just by believing in God? Righteousness is something you work toward. Righteousness is our effort to work towards some type of better ethic, good moral response. Righteousness are all of those things collectively that we do that help us become more like the best of either who we are or if there is a God, what a God calls us to. Well, you've heard me say in the last two weeks that that is always man's effort to do that. The gospel message is that God reaches down to us and imparts to us a righteousness that's of God. That is the incarnation. That is the Christmas story. Not us building on our good works to try and attain something that's spiritually better. It is God reaching to us and saying, let me offer you my spirit, give you freedom, so that you might then be an expression of my righteousness. That's nuts! But that's the Christmas story. So Paul says, this is who Jesus Christ is. And I've been called as an apostle, set apart, which is really what apostle means. Set apart for this task, to call out from all the Gentiles, others who will embrace this good news, and let me tell you, Paul says in verse 6, you are among those who have been called. This is your calling as well. This is who you are. I don't, I don't know what you think of when you think of your own identity. How you name your own identity. How you view yourself. I think it's very easy for identity to be wrapped up in our history or in those things that have been givens in our life. I didn't have a choice about where I was born, but because of where I was born, I'm a U.S. citizen. It's easy for me to view that as part of my identity, but when it's part of my identity, it then becomes a measure by which I um, judge those who do not share that same identity. So everyone who's not a U.S. citizen then becomes something other. And it's very easy, based on that, for me to then begin to draw division lines, separating people from other people groups. 
I can view my identity by a political party. But as soon as that becomes a crucial central piece of my political of my self-identity, it then also identifies what I am not and what others are and creates those division lines. I can do that by gender. I, I can do that by denominational affiliation. Those division lines then become ways by which judgments take place, discrimination, um, the ways in which I will separate and make judgment calls. If my identity, however, is in Christ, then something else begins to happen. Because in Christ, Scripture says there is no male nor female, there is no Jew nor Greek, there's no barbarian, Scythian, slave, nor free, but all are in Christ. It begins to change how I view myself. Now, some of those other characteristics are true, but I state them confessionally, not in terms of my identity. I, I don't change my history, but I confessionally state that that's true about me, but not my identity. So I think the question for me that comes up out of this passage and during the season is, what is my identity? My, my dad has a, um, his gift-giving ability is, is interesting in so many ways. Long before white elephant gifts became a thing to do, my dad did white elephant gifts on Christmas morning. I don't think there was a name for it when I was a kid. Often, my dad, you'd know the gifts under the tree that were wrapped by my dad because my dad was terrible at wrapping gifts. If he went to the store and it came in a bag, it just made sense to him to tape up that bag, put something around it, and put it under the tree. Other times, it would be newspaper print that he'd just wrap the thing up. And so you kind of knew the things that he had not handed over to my mom to wrap. My mom, on the other hand, is like opposites. Hers could have been in a storeroom, storefront window, and they were just gorgeous. She hated to tear off the ribbon and whatever else she had attached to the ribbon with the gorgeous paper. Yeah, they were a sight to behold. One particular Christmas morning, there was a gift that Dad had put special attention um, had given special attention to, it was wrapped better than most of his other gifts. He had really wrapped it up and attempted to make it look nice. But you could still tell it was from Dad. It came time for that present to be distributed, it went to a particularly family member, and a um, comment was made about the just nice wrapping, the work that he had done to make this look so nice, and took off the ribbon, took off the outer wrapping, there was the box, opened up the box, and my father had decided from the um, previous stent that he had had in the hospital earlier that year to take the bedpan set that was sent home with him from the hospital, put it in the box, wrap it up, and give it as a gift that year for Christmas. This is my dad. What a contrast, the beautiful wrapping, all that made that look so nice, and inside a bedpan set. 
You didn't know they came in sets, did you? Yeah, they were like three pieces to this thing, bedpan set. It made the rounds at Christmas the next five years. It just went from family member to family member for the next five. What is very interesting, though, is that I think the outside identity of the gift is sometimes not at all indicative of what's on the inside. When we talk about identity, we so often think about the ways in which we present ourselves to others. Nice ribbons, pretty paper if we can, nice solid strong box that will hold whatever's inside. The question for me is if this Christmas someone takes off the ribbon and the paper wrap of my life, what will they find on the inside? If my identity is wrapped up in those things that are um, structures that leave me in a place where I compare and contrast, where I find my worth in somebody else being less worthy, where I find myself presenting in ways that create the appropriate amount of status or view or the way in which somebody might um, perceive me and receive me. Then you tear off the wrapping and inside you're going to find a lot of interesting things. You're going to find biases and discrimination. You're going to find resentment and maybe hatred. You're going to find maybe self-loathing. Maybe a view of myself that has led me to a place of resentment and pain and hurt, you're going to find all kinds of things that don't match this nice, beautiful wrapping that gets presented to others. But I really believe, I really believe that if, as Paul did, finds his identity simply in Christ, that the wrapping will come so much closer to matching what's inside. That, that that identity in Christ leads me to places where my heart begins to get changed. Things begin to shift. How I view myself, then as a result of how I view myself, how I view others. Believing that I am God's, leads me to a place where I don't need the division marks to make me feel better about myself because I am God's child. So for me, this Christmas morning, in a week, or maybe for some of you on a Christmas Eve, my guess is for most of us in here, there'll be some gift exchange of some sort. But for all of us, could this be the year where we ask ourselves the question, if somebody unwrapped all the bows and ribbons and paper of my life, 
could they find the incarnate gift? Because that's what Christmas is supposed to be. We celebrate the incarnation in Jesus, but the power of the resurrection is that the gift is now to reside in me and in you. So if somebody gets past all of the ribbons, are they going to find the good news in you? What a gift that would be. If the people in our lives might experience the incarnation by knowing us, that'd be a Merry Christmas. If that's not true for you, maybe this morning it can start being true. If it doesn't feel congruent, maybe this morning things can begin to shift. Because it's a free gift. It's not my earning it. The good news is that it's a righteousness given to us by God where the incarnation happens inside of us and then begins to work through us in amazing ways. Where the good news becomes not just good news for me, but good news through me and you. This morning could be that morning for you. A season of true Merry Christmas. It's just a matter of saying, Lord, I don't, I don't know how this happens. Because D was right. It sounds like a crazy notion. But you are willing to impart your righteousness to me and to let me be the good news. I'm willing to give it a shot. For those of you who need to be reminded this morning, of what the gift really is. Let this be the morning that starts the Christmas season with unwrapping the true you, the God-given you, the good news you, the Christ incarnate in you. Father in heaven, your precious, holy, gracious name brings us together. In this place, a gymnasium transformed in the hope that it might be a sanctuary. A sanctuary where we not only meet one another, but where we can meet you. How wonderful it might be this morning, Lord if the good news becomes our good news, if the truth about which the prophets spoke, the truth about Jesus the Christ, that we might give ourselves out of the freedom that you have bestowed upon us in servitude to you, wrapping our identity up in you, wanting to be known by you, wanting you to live in us, wanting the outside to be congruent with the inside. 
wanting, Lord, for all of those other ways by which we identify ourselves just to be laid down. They may be part of our history, part of confessionally who we are, but this morning, Lord, our identity wrapped up in you. For those, Lord, this morning who just need a bit of courage to claim their inheritance in you. For those who need forgiveness for those who need to forgive. For those who need to let go of things that have enslaved. Lord, this morning, provide the courage, provide the hope, provide the forgiveness, provide the grace and strength to be forgiving. Break the chains, give us the freedom the freedom then to say, we are fully yours. So that this may be the most amazing Christmas of all. Thank you, Lord.